What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everyone, Yas here and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is a repeat guest and a good friend of mine, Lee Waddington. Afternoon, Lee. How are you, man? Hi, Yas. Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. No, I'm, 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 well, thank you for being with me. I'm, I'm looking forward to you know, delving deeper into today's discussion. Obviously, it's slightly different from last time where we looked a little bit about more your personal journey. I'm sure some of that will come out in this conversation as well. But you know, shifting in a different direction, we're you know, we're prepping for the release of your new book. So maybe just share us a bit of insight around who you are, first of all, for those that haven't caught the first episode or maybe haven't um don't know quite remember that, and then a bit of info around your book and we'll kind of delve in from there. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm Lee Waddington. Um I'm a UA for a FA Advanced Youth Award coach. I've also got a master's degree in sports psychology. Um, been involved with professional football for the best part of 30 years. I've had my own private academies in the Manchester region. And also during that period, worked for certain Premier League clubs like Manchester United, Man City, Blackburn Rovers, Nottingham Forest. And then my last role was... I had a very, you know, it was such a great time at Burnley Football Club. I, I must have held about five different positions there from foundation phase lead coach, youth development phase lead coach, head of recruitment. And then finally, last sort of year was head of coaching. And then I did a little bit on the project side where we were looking to go from cat three to cat two status. So been heavily involved in football at all stages. Um, and really the book, book came out of that. 30 years being being involved in the game, really looking at modern issues of, you know, athlete development, not just in football. Must make that very clear, Yas, you know, even though I've been involved in football, I've done quite a lot of research into other sports here in the UK and in the US. Um, and just looked at what the issues are with modern day athlete development and tried to come up with some solutions that would work for coaches, athletes, and also the parents or support mechanism that lies around each athlete. Uh, so the book's really in two parts. The first part is what, what are the issues? The second part uh, is really what I'm putting forth as the possible sort of solution to, to those problems and issues. 
Brilliant. So, you know, just, just start us off then, you know, do, let's look at the title of the book first. Maybe just tell us what that is first and we'll kind of just delve in there because I think that kind of really encapsulates and summarises really what it is that you're trying to do with the, with the context of the book. Yeah. The title, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's, the title's Redefine Coaching and Athlete Development in Sports Using free, uh, the Freedom to Framework, sorry, the Framework to Freedom sort of methodology that I've created over the last sort of 20 plus years. Mm. And obviously, if off, the, off the top of that, you know, you've, you've obviously told that you've done a lot of research, not just in um, football, but wider, the wider spectrum in terms of sports as a whole. And please correct me if I'm wrong in my assumptions, but my assumption would be a lot of this stuff is not just down to actually developing the athlete, but actually developing the individual as a, pe- as a person. Um, and a lot of these frameworks, and especially when you talk about sports psychology, a lot of it kind of lends itself to people development rather than athlete and talent development specifically. Would I be correct in saying that? Absolutely spot on. Um, the, the sort of crux of the book is looking at each individual. I think what happens in team sports specifically is mm. a lot of coaches, and again, the caveat to what I'm going to say, you know, I think there's some fantastic work that goes out in all kinds of different sports, you know, coaches, male and female, giving up the time, you know, getting paid absolutely, you know, very little or sometimes nothing to actually go and, you know, try and teach and develop children. Um, but what what I have observed a lot is there's a lot of club sports where the coach is more focused on the results of games than the actual development of each individual child. And that's really what I'm trying to say in the book, really, is that there is no real team. There is, you know, everyone talks about the team. It's not about individuals, it's the team. Well, actually, for me, it's about each individual that makes up the team that is vitally important when you're looking at developing them as a human being, as a child, as a youth, and then as an athlete. So for me, you know, it's the sum of its parts of team. You know, I actually say in the book that, you know, if you get, say, Man United's first team and they go into training, they don't all turn up together. They all come up, come in individually, they train together, but then they leave individually and they've got individual lives. And that can be said for any team at any level. You know, whether it's, you know, a youth club, whether it's a soccer club, whether it's rugby, cricket, you know, they, they come individually to be a collective and then they leave and they spend most of the time actually as individuals. And that's really what interested me to start writing the book is really what, what stimulates that individual when they're very young, all the way through to hopefully, you know, attaining success as a pro. What is it about that individual pathway that actually leads them to actually gaining some success in their chosen sport? So you're absolutely spot on. It's as much, if not more, about them as a human being than it ever is about them as an athlete. I'm very interested in the shadow that stands behind the athlete, you know, what they're like before they put the boots on, before they put a racket in the hand, for you know, for example. What is it about that person before they actually, you know, be deemed and labelled an athlete? 100%. I think it's a really interesting way to look at it as well. So I guess just, you know, before we really kind of get to the heart of it, then maybe just give us your definition of what coach and athlete development actually is. And because I think that in itself has so many different perceptions and, and, um, ideas around what that looks like and what that actually is and obviously you know you're really trying to like influence people's thinking around what it is and you know and challenge them to not so much change their definition but challenge them to really 
inquire yeah. further about whether their definition is spot on or not, if you like. Yeah, I think, again, from the observations, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of coaches who want to win games and that, and that sort of determines what they're actually going to do in the practices to actually get the outcome that they actually desire. For me, it should never be about the coach. It isn't about the coach. The coaches should be a sort of guide on the side. It should be more of a mentor than ever being a dictator. So for me, when, when I think about athlete development, I don't think about the end result ever. It's not about the end result. It's about the here and now and taking that next step. It's that you know, aggregation of marginal gains. Can we make that person 1% better every time that they come to us? Because if you come to us 10 times and we do that, then they're going to get 20% better as an example. But for me, you know, there's all these different frameworks around sport, you know, and in football, you'll, you'll know this because it's used extensively. You've got the four corner model, which I've actually put in the book because some of it, is in place for a reason and there's research behind it because the four corner model came out of Loughborough University after extensive research. So I'm not going to discount something that's already there just because I want to be different. That's not the case for the book, you know, so I actually do like the four corner model. You know, I do think that a lot of coaches favor two corners more than the other two more primarily because they don't know what to do in the psychological and social corners. So then they'll focus very heavily on the technical and then on the physical, you know, because we all still get blown away, you know, and I'll own my hands up. I have in the past, you know, when you're working at a club and you get a 14 year old boy walks in as a potential player and he's six foot one already. And everyone's like, wow, he's, he looks amazing. And we tend to get blown away by, by, by these things. But I think when you're looking at athlete development, if you start off with the person, get to know the person on an individual basis, create that coach-to-athlete bond, then you're going to set the foundation for something that will be really solid and really help that child or that youth or young person when they hit a bit of a road bump in their journey, which they're bound to. You know, everyone hits a road bump, whether you're old, young, or, you know, anything in between. But if you've got a coach that cares about that child and the child understands that the coach cares about them, then that child is in a much safer firmer position than they ever are if it's just about going out on a Saturday or Sunday to win a game because that brings a whole host of different problems when it's result orientated it brings a host of problems that I think children find very very stressful and find hard to cope with it and that's I think why we see the drop-off numbers in you know not not just in the UK or US but also in places like Australia you see the drop-off numbers of participation in sport across the board kids are in about the age of 13 and above dropping off in really really big numbers and we've got to start asking ourselves why and what are we doing that's making those children, when they find a voice of their own, saying to the parents, I don't want to do this anymore. So we've got to peel it back and find out what's the problem at source and put it right. And I think it's quite easy to do that. I think spot on. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I was just speaking to Alex Inglethorpe earlier. earlier um, and he, we were talking about how developing that relationship with the player is so key because actually it's only through developing that relationship you can start to build your trust, start to build a, you know, a sense of uh, safety for the players, if you like, as if, and the same thing that you just said there, 
um, to really just get them to buy into you rather than trying to offload a bunch of information to them and then thinking like, well, should I really take this on board? Should I not take this on board? And even question it because they don't really know what your true intention is. And not to say that you've necessarily, that they necessarily think you've got bad intentions, but actually there's a difference between them not establishing that you've got bad intentions and not establishing actually this person, we don't know what their intentions are. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I think yeah, that's, exactly. that's the real key piece for me. So I guess on that then, what would you say are some of the good or some of the strategies that maybe you've come across and identified as really effective for, for coaches to start considering actually developing those relationships with athletes and setting that? It, it, it's not really setting just an environment, but it's setting a culture of trust, a culture of for, uh, relationships being forged and whatnot, and actually just a togetherness, if you like. Yeah, I think culture is a key, key word there, Yas. So in part two of the book, with the sort of solution that I put forward, sort of looked at the four corner model and sort of utilized the framework of that to really create my own, which I've, I've been working on for over a decade now and tested it out with players of all ages and all different ability levels and different sexes as well. So it's around the four C's. So you've got the coach and the coaching program in one corner. You've got consumption in the other. So we're looking at things like diet, you know, hydration, sleep, then in one of the other corners, we've got care. How's that child caring for themselves? How are they serving others? And then we've got how they connect with others. So how they communicate and connect at home, at school, with friends, with the coach, with teammates, etc. So it's just really putting that model together to delve into each individual child. So with the company that I've set up in the US, which is Play Sports Academy, we're building the tech that's actually going to allow our coaches to observe these things and actually question these things with each child. But I think for the first time ever, really, because you'll know what it's like with clubs at any level, parents are sometimes kept at an arm's length distance for various reasons. And that's not really the topic of this sort of, you know, of this podcast. But we do know they are kept at distance. So what we're doing, certainly with the business out there, is we're actually looking at the parents as partners. So on the review process, so every sort of 12 weeks, we will actually be sending out digitally to each parent this framework where they can actually go in and actually let us know what the child's diet's like. And we do know that some parents might not be 100% honest for various reasons, but I think as they start to trust us by giving us accurate information will allow us then to really help their child. So what's the diet like? Do they ever drink anything other than a fizzy drink, whether it's Coke, lemonade? You know, do they like veg? Do they eat it? You know, what sort of foods are they consuming? What sort of liquids are they? What they like at nighttime, go to bed. Because we all know nowadays, and we can't avoid it, the modern day technology, you know, smartphones, etc., pay play a pivotal role in everybody's lives, not just children's, everybody's. So are they going to bed with a phone? So they go to bed at nine, say as a 10-year-old, but are they really going to sleep at nine or they're still awake at 10:30 because they've been on the phone? So only by finding out these details behind the player can then we actually focus on really genuine, authentic athlete development, personal sort of development. You know, it's things like 
What other things does a child do? Does he do anything else? Does she play any other sport? Are they part of social groups? You know, because we see certainly here in the UK, and now it's starting to bleed over into the US, we're seeing young kids going into pro clubs at five years of age. And I understand why I've done it myself. But we've seriously got to start asking ourselves, if we're having five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids into a club and before the age where they can sign at under nine as a club, they might be at five different clubs and training six nights a week. And I have seen that in my time. We've got to ask a serious question about early specialization and the damage that it can do on so many different levels. So we're asking about this. What's a child doing to care for themselves? Do they do anything in the home, outside the home to serve others? And then that big question about the way they connect, because we all know, we all think we're connected to the whole world now because we've got a smartphone in our palm. But actually, are we really that connected when we're seeing children come home from school if they're not participating in sport, don't leave the bedroom and actually believe that they're connected to other people because they're doing what you and I are doing, which is brilliant. It's a great use of technology, what we're doing now. But actually, if you were a, fr a real friend of mine, Yaz, and we lived geographically close enough to each other, this would never be enough for me. I'd have to see you, you know, and after, you know, you know, hear you speak, you know, closely, feel you, you know, touch, you know, all these things that I think children miss out on. We need to know these things before we can actually step into the arena of, right, we're going to develop him as an athlete. Because if we don't know these things, how can we ever truly develop them to their maximum potential i really don't believe that we can and i think it's something that's genuinely missing i, I think you're spot on i think you know that it's the subtlety of actually just developing those softer skills and under you know developing awareness of the soft skills as well as actually developing the skills themselves and i think having an understanding like you said you know if i'm face to face with you you're going to pick up on certain cues and things that might allow you to not necessarily take in more information but be more conscious about the information that's been taken you know we're, in, we're you know we're, we're speaking over this this virtual platform right now there's actually gonna be certain things that we just physically will not be able to pick up on exactly. um, and i think those little things do do go amiss and especially especially you know I'm, i look at my kids and you know, i was even having a conversation recently about about how much time um we spend as play as, as young players now actually playing the game um and i was like yeah but two hours is too much well actually if you go back 15, 20 years ago, and probably, you know, a, a little bit more more than that for yourself, it was actually we'd have that two hours a week training plus the other five hours that were out on the street. Exactly. I mean, you know I, mean? And, I, remember, and, I, I remember Johan Cruyff like, made a really bold statement when he was asked how he learned how to play, knowing that it was at Ajax, which yeah. was the world's leading club in the 70s. And he went, oh, no, no, it wasn't at Ajax. I played for four hours every day. Every day of the week with my friends out on the street, that's where I learned how to play. And that's why I've called my business play, because we just don't see kids play anywhere near enough anymore. They certainly don't play on their own. You know, I look around where I live and I drive around in the holidays and you see fields empty. You know, they're just used for people walking the dogs nowadays. You do not see kids in groups playing any type of sport whether it's football, cricket, rugby, whatever. You just do not see it anymore. Mm -hmm. And when you have your own children, which obviously no, you have, and you've got a young baby, you know, I see, I see kids of mine and 
they very rarely, unless we dragged them, want to leave the bedroom. Mm. Now, we've all been there as teenagers. Back in my day, it was listening to music. Today, it's on phones. But I just think there's a big void somewhere in the middle between kids not playing on their own anymore, which would allow them to create their own games, play made-up games, play 10 aside, 20 aside, 8v9, you know, different types of goals, different ways to finish, managing conflict without a parent having to be involved and stepping in. Mm. No, those, those, those type of things don't just don't happen anymore. So what kids find themselves doing from a very young age is they go into a really structured system, no matter what sport or governing body, you know, it is. They go into an overly structured system and that's all they know. So when we, you know, when I have discussions with lots of coaches here and abroad, and the one current that keeps coming through is there's no creativity. My business partner's a massive basketball fan. He's like, the NBA is just athletes, robots. There's no creativity anymore. And then you start to wonder why. But when you peel it back, you just don't see kids playing, you know, sort of pick up basketball games anymore. Yeah. And I think, I think that void there with a lack of play. How many times have you seen it, Yaz, when you watch a coach and they save the game for the last 10 minutes? And everything else is passing drills, blah, blah, blah. And it's all block practice. Yeah. And then the kids get the best part of the session, but they get a minimal amount of it. Yeah. I think, you know, it's really, it's a really interesting point. And is it, I was delivering a workshop um, just last week. And, you know, one of the biggest, uh, it was around match day experiences and how to get more out of the match day experience for the players. And the main piece that I was really focusing on was actually what are we doing with the subs? Reality is, look, we, we want we want to bring back some of these skills that the the young players have, in terms of what they maybe naturally got before, which was like you said, problem solving, managing conflict, all of that sort. So, we want to bring some of that stuff back. How can we bleed that back into what we're doing? Um, so, I actually delivered. It was a it was essentially a game um, taking place, and I pretty much allowed the guys who were in them in the game itself. Right, you guys decide what you want to do. Here's a framework for you to work in. Go and do it. We've got five players. It's five v five. You pick your position. You pick who's going to come on. You pick who's going to be off as a sub. I'm just going to work with the subs because you know within that I also believe that you know your, your greatest impact is probably with the players that are off the pitch than the ones that are on it. Um, and what I ended up doing was actually doing some one v one stuff off the pitch with these guys that are off the pitch. And the question was, well, typically if you go back to your training session, why do we put the game? Well, we use the game at the end typically because you know that's the bit that everyone's waiting for. But if you don't, if you don't give them that, if you give them that at the beginning, you feel like maybe you're going to lose them during the game. And you know, I challenge that that perception and that thinking to say actually, if you ever have a session where your player is having to ask you to play a game, that should tell you everything you need to know. And that is quite simply that everything you've been doing up to that point has not engaged or made them or entertained them. And it doesn't mean that you put them in sessions to entertain them specifically, but actually that should be one of your priorities. Can you keep them engaged? Now that might not be in a way that they have anticipated it being, but that doesn't matter because the piece, you know, it's about you getting your outcomes that you know that are right for them, but in a way that affects and engages them where they're not actually thinking about anything else, but performing within that activity or exercise that you've got in place. And I come and I mentioned that because like I said, when I doing this, this um, workshop, Guys on the side, we had a we had about forty odd coaches watching the session, and the coaches were asking the players um, questions about how they found that experience, how they found you know being worked on with the, at the sidelines and whatnot. 
And I said to him, right, I want one. I want you to ask players one question, only one question. When they were off the pitch, did they ever think about actually getting involved in the game? And they said, no, we didn't actually. We were just so engaged in what was happening over here. We didn't even think about the game getting on the pitch. And I said, that for me, that for me is success. That tells me everything I need to know because right. actually the activity I've given them was so engaging, they weren't actually even considering, I'm not even on the pitch. Decent. And I think that is what we need to kind of get more of. So I guess, you know, you see it now, a lot of academies, a lot of different programs now where they're trying to bring some of that stuff back in, whether that's through, you know, implementing cage football, allowing different age yep. to kind of play play, a play and train alongside one another. Um, but the reality is you're doing that in place of something else that was already in that time. Whereas go back 15, 20 years ago, actually that was that plus the addition of that. So I guess my question to, you know, in a roundabout way was, how do you think that people could start maybe bleeding some of that stuff back in? Because actually there is, like you said, loads of fields, loads of places that are empty that might have been populated with loads of people before playing football or playing some sort of sport anyway. Yeah, I mean, again, it does go down, I think, quite a lot to the impact of the tech that's available to young children nowadays that are sort of replaced kids going knocking on for each other with the friends, you know, going playing out. I, I think, you know, whether it's them playing, you know, an Xbox game, whether they're on the phone or both or watching Netflix, I think there's so much modern technology that's in the home now. Um, I think that has been a major replacement of kids getting out and playing sport with each other. And I think this is where the organised sport has really taken over. And maybe it's had to, 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 you know, to a degree, you know, whereby because it's so organised and structured, it's in the child's and the parent's weekly schedule. They know that that's what they're going to do. So they go and do that and then they come back to whatever it is they're doing in the bedroom, whether it's, you know, on the phone, talking to friends. So I think... I think it starts at the youngest age groups. If we can start to influence the youngest age groups, and that's at school, you, you know, we know there's been a huge decline in PE within schools and the provision. And again, I'm not political at all, so I have no agenda there, but there's definitely been a decline in schools. So I think maybe, you know, something replacing that in schools where kids within their PE class, I've got the freedom to be creative and create games and play lots and lots of different sports instead of just focusing on one. We know football is hugely popular here and in the States and in places like Australia and Canada, et cetera. But I think, you know, when we, when we don't influence children from the younger age, by the time they get to teenagers, it's sometimes it's already, it's too, it's too late to influence them for, for permanent change. So I think really at the, you know, the youngest age groups or so, as soon as they come from, you know, like nursery into first year, you know, primary school, I think it's at that stage where the influence of the school and the teachers and physical education should really be in place and really be creative. So they play football, a bit of rugby, whether it's tag rugby, better cricket or tennis or whatever, just in a real form, no real rules being engaged in this, but just letting them experience having a racket in the hand, having a rugby ball in the hands compared to a football at the feet, I think would be really, really influential. And I think that's really where it needs to start to happen because I know, I know, I know in the US we're working at a school and they have 20 minutes 
with their teacher that teaches in maths, English, geography. So it's not even somebody who has got any specialism or any training in sport. He's trying to deliver something just so they get their 20 minutes in. So I think, I think there's a problem across the Western world where the provision of sport for children at young age in school is non-existent or it's very, very poor. I think professional clubs, certainly Premier League clubs, championship clubs, etc. I think they've got a massive part to play to engage in the wider community. We all know they've got community teams, um, but I think putting things together that's not, you're going to be a pro footballer. This is a trial. This is this. I think actually just why, why could a club like Manchester United not, not do this in Stretford and surrounding areas? Book out an AstroTurf field, have one or two coaches, guides, whatever, no coaching, and actually just invite children from certain schools in on certain nights and actually just go, there's all the kit and equipment, off you go. Close the gate. They're there to make sure that they're all safe. Any problems, issues, they can get in there and help them with it. But actually just let kids play for free under the Manchester United banner because I just don't see that. I just don't see the opportunities because kids kids do need a bit of a nudge. Yeah. Because they just sometimes they can't do it on their own. So they do need some guidance. 100%. I think you're spot on. And I think, but I think that, you know, the, the challenge is, is in exactly what you just said there is it, it costs money, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and obviously 15, 20 years ago, we could literally just rock up. We could even, it, we, it wouldn't even have to be grass. We'll just play outside on the concrete. Yeah. You know? You know, worst comes to worst, we use a bit of chalk or even an old chipped stone to actually mark out some areas. Or you know, we jump over a fence that we all know that we're not meant to be over yeah. and start playing over there. So, but you know, that that simply just doesn't happen now. So, someone has to foot the bill. And obviously, you've got more and more and more of these pitches being built, but actually, they all they all cost quite a lot um, to be in use. And you know, it's, it's it, I think the most wild thing about it is it's sometimes you look at the pitch and it'll be completely empty. No one will be using it, but they will not let anyone else on. And this is where I think there's got to be some giving back. And I know that the clubs will say, well, we have got community teams and we do give back, but I just think they can do so much more to engage kids in a safe environment where there's no adult intervention other than in you go, everything is there that you need. And look, all they need is a ball. They They don't need bibs. They don't really need cones. Because going back to my day and even your day, sometimes it was just you were waiting for the kid who had a ball because we didn't all have one. Now, that's not paying a sorry picture. That's just sort of how it was. And I still think that exists today. And sometimes society is blind to that. You know, certainly when you go in inner city, London, Manchester, these kids who don't have a ball. And that's a fact. So I think that still exists today, although time has moved on. But I think just hiring a facility for them just to let them go and play and just have a adult there who can just cast an eye over it just to make sure that everybody is safe and everybody is playing, you know? And even, you know, letting kids pick the teams themselves because, every, you know, everything's picked for them nowadays. Everything's done for them, you know? It goes back to what you said about kids who aren't starting a game doing activities on the side. You know, you're absolutely spot on. We we did something similar at Burnley where we just set up for the away team and our uh, team subs. You know, it was football head sort of tennis or little 1v1 games or what, what you know, whatever it was. What we try to do in the US is a little bit different. We're having a no bench policy. 
I believe if you've got 40 kids turn up, 40 kids should play. Shouldn't be 35 and five sit on the bench. So we're having a no bench policy. So we'll just set up as many games as it needs so everybody gets to play. And if one if one game for 10 minutes has to be 3v3, then that's absolutely fine because they're still playing. And all we'll do is rotate the players so they all get a bit of, a bit of an adventure through the different types of games you can play from 2v2, 3v3, 4v4, 6v6, 7v7, etc. Traveling through that and, and you know, and ex, you know, experiencing different size games. And sometimes playing out, outnumbered. So you might have one player less, you might have one player more. You know, players get sent off in games. So the younger you teach kids to go, oh, it's no big deal. We'll just change our shape a little bit. And they learn how to do it themselves. I think it's a massive step forward. 100%. It sounds like you're redefining coaching already, um, Lee. Oh, so I appreciate let's, that. Let's come, back, let's come back to that. You know, so you talked there earlier about the framework to freedom. Um, Tell us a bit more about that. What, what exactly is that? Where does that come from? And you know, Yeah, it's a term that I've reversed. If I'm being honest, it was a gaffer at Burnley and he used to call it uh, freedom to framework. And I always thought it's a great saying, but I actually thought it, was, it should be the other way around. So that's why I actually labelled and titled the book, you know, Framework to Freedom. Because I want, in my opinion, I want kids, yes, to have a, you know, sort of like a parameter of a framework, but actually have complete freedom within that to actually taste freedom, the excitement of doing different things and actually creating for themselves, creating rules for games, adapting games, playing different size games, you know, to have the freedom to do it. So the methodology really is roundabout having a very, very loose framework where there's no real, I say there's no curriculum, there is a curriculum, but actually it's up for interpretation by the children. So it's actually handing that over to them. It's repositioning the kit, the coach from a central position, like I said earlier, to a guide on the side. And it's about them working with each individual player. So, each, each of our guides, coaches, as younger age groups, a maximum of 12 kids in a group. Older age groups, we will go to 16. And each of those children will have what's called an individual progress plan. And this is where all that information then comes in. So the coach has a little bit of input, but it's not just about him. It's not him saying, Yaz is a good player, Yaz is a bad player. It's about the actual player completing that part of the IPP. And then the coach doesn't come in and go yes or no. They just affirm or not certain aspects of it. And then bringing the parent in for the things that the coach will never, ever see. We're never going to see the kid at school. We're never going to see them in the home. But actually, they spend most of the time at those places. We need to find out an honest picture of that. What does it look like? What does it look like for that individual child? And then each individual child across the board. So just within that thing, because obviously, you know, you, you talk there about it. Is it the IPP, did you call it? Individual, yes. progress plan, yeah? individual progress plan, yeah. So how does that differ from what we might be typically be aware of as maybe an individual development plan, individual learning plan? Is it very, yeah, yeah. Does it vary in any way? Does it 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You know, is there any, or is it just, is it just how you refer to it? And if, if it does vary, I'm very curious to know if there's any specific information, whether that be through a particular question or a type of interaction, that you're looking to kind of engage with on that. So, you know, there might be specific questions that you're asking and it's not so much the question in terms of what the information is obtaining, but more so in the way that it's, it's almost the way, in the way it's asked actually it obtains a more specific, specific type of information, if that makes sense. Yeah. When you look at the technical component, the coaching, as I call the coaching, coaching component, you will see obviously that there's, some of the main elements of the four corners in there. And that's where the similarity really ends because that's where it comes into the consumption, the care and the connectivity. So this is where we're asking questions of, of the player, first and foremost. Just tell us what your diet consists of. Just tell us what type of drinks and how often you drink them. You know, so that in the consumption sort of corner. Talk to us about your sleep routine. What sort of time do you go to sleep? What do you do when you go to bed? So we're asking sort of like open questions of the child just to let us know from their perspective, what does it look like? So then when we're getting to care, it's like we're asking them. So if we look at caring for yourself, what other sports do you play? What other types of exercise do you do? Friends, groups that you're a part of. Do you go to sporting events, etc.? In the US, we ask them about church because it's quite big in certain states. And then when we look at their connectivity, you know, who are you close to at home? How do you connect with them? What do you do with them? Is it a brother, sister? Is it a favourite uncle? You know, what about the next circle outside your home? So when we're looking at your friends, your friendship group, your sporting group, your school groups, talk to us about them. What does it consist of? Who's in there? Why are you friends with Mark or why are you friends with Sally? So we're asking them those questions, but then at the same time, we're asking the parents then for their view on it. Because obviously what we want to see is, is where they're really strong. So it might be, he loves veg, eats lots of veg, lean meat, or he's vegetarian or whatever. We're not really interested in, you know, whether they're a meat eater or not. But then does the parent affirm that? And when they do, but it's a mirror image rubric. It might be underneath, but it won't drink any juice or water. It's just like Coca-Cola, morning, noon and night. And that's where is the coach, because you know, coach is king. Tell the child's about 12 or 13. So then we can actually try to influence that child directly when they come to us on the field, because now we've got the information that the child has told us and that the parents reaffirmed. Yeah. 100%. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's some really good bits in there. Um, I think, A, there's a couple of things to kind of draw upon. First thing is, obviously, this is the type of stuff that probably would be done in, in what you would consider it to be an elite academy, um, at a professional club, maybe. Um, and then in response to that, there probably be a lot of coaches that are probably outside of that environment, maybe even some in that environment that will be saying, yeah. right, Lee, love it. Love the idea. Get it. Just ain't got the time. Just yeah. The time. yeah. So, other than saying, well, you've got to make the time. <laughs> how do you respond to that? Because that, that's a realistic 
you know, yeah. realistic constraint and challenge that people have in terms of trying to implement this sort of stuff. Because if you go back to those four corners, now you talked about earlier, a lot of coaches just really focus on two of the corners rather than all four of them. And it literally is, in my opinion, a case of them saying to themselves, where can I have the quickest impact and see the quickest impact as, as quick as possible? Um, and it is, well, if I can just do some technical stuff, uh, you know, someone else will take care of the other stuff, basically. And the reality is, actually, if you do the other stuff, then the technical stuff will almost take care of itself in, in some ways, yeah. um, which is at least the way I look at it. So, you know, often Austin is interested. I was having a conversation with, um, with Sally Needham. I'm not sure if you know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Sally was we were talking about actually the foundations is actually in the psychological and the social corners because actually by getting those things right, you then allow yourself to, to build build the layers on top in terms of the technical stuff, the tactical stuff, more physical performance stuff. And, you know, I personally believe that psychological, the, the psychological corner is probably the most important one because actually it links itself to everything that you do, whether that's on the pitch, off the pitch, in terms of your decision-making, in terms of your perception, you understand your motivation, everything kind of ties back into that. And without that piece being at the center of everything, I think everything just collapses in my, in my opinion, but, you know, without going off on a tangent too much, you know, come back to the initial question, what would you, what would you say to those coaches that are actually saying, well, yeah, Lee, great stuff, but how are we going to do all this? Cause I'm only here 90 minutes, 90 minutes on a, on a Tuesday night or, you know, at two hours a week and I've got an hour on a Wednesday and I've got an hour on Friday and then we've got a game day on a Sunday and then I've got to travel to and from work and I haven't, I haven't even planned my session. I've just thought about it on the way here and I haven't even reviewed yeah. my session because actually I haven't got time to do that because as soon as I finish here, I'm, you know, I've got to get home to the kids or whatever that might look like. Yeah, definitely. It's a really good question. And it's obviously one that I've been asked, you know, quite, quite a lot when I've spoke to different people, you know, time, time is a, you know, is, is a big issue. And again, it's something that comes up in the book, you know, without going off tangent as well, you know, I talk about things like when we're looking at diet for a child, knowing that parents, you know, who maybe have got two or three siblings and they've got busy lives and busy jobs. How did it feel that, you know, you know, fuel that child properly before they go and train and then after they've trained, when time is, you know, of the essence. So it is something that definitely comes up, but in relation, you know, to, you know, your direct question, which is a really good question. One of the things that we looked at with time was how do we use tech? How can we use tech to actually help the coach still get the relevant information, but within a time frame that would really work for the coach and then also for the player and for the parent. So this is why we've decided, you know, three quarters of the actual IPP is going to be completed by the actual child and the parent. The top part, the coach coaching part will be completed by, in the main, the coach. So they're not having to complete all of it. Their time will be spent more just seeing what answers come through on the platform. So the platform at the moment is, is being built in the US. <clears throat> Everything will be touchscreen. So a coach will say on the field, when they're looking at say the technical and physical aspects, as well as the, you know, as well as the social and psych, you know, it's touchscreen. So by the side, I've got obviously subheadings, variable, you know, variables under each heading, which they when they observe or they're observing, it might be something that needs more progression they can actually just tick those. So in terms of time, it can actually be done in session. So within my programme, there are no drills. It's all game-based. Everything's game-based or the kids are playing because I believe... 
from the research and what the science tells us that that's how anybody learns anything better, but for longer. And that's the key. And we could come back to the science of learning because that's something I haven't touched on yet. But because we give them the time frame within a session, certainly at the beginning and at the end, it takes the pressure off the coach to have to be in there coaching all the time. They actually have observation time. So within a 90 minute practice, they have 30 minutes to observe. So they're there with their iPad, observing, just touching boxes, and the tech takes care of everything else. So in terms of time, we're giving them time in the practice and we're using tech to delineate between a lack of time and being able to use their time more effectively while they're actually coaching and working with the children. Mm. And, I, and I think, in principle, great. Then now the next question people are going to throw at you all, Lee, I can't afford that tech. What do I do? Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I, I understand that. Time. That's one of the things that we sort of looked at. So within the tech is going to be an app and the app will be free that can go on coaches' phones. Okay, fine. So what, what we try to do is look at time, look at cost, look at effectiveness. But really, you know, it goes back to what you said at the beginning. It's very easy to say to someone, you've just got to find the time. But that's just a crass response, in my opinion. However, there's always a caveat. My true belief is this. And I've been a part-time academy coach before I went into the game full-time and had children and all these things that everybody has. I've always been of the firm belief, if you want to be the best and you want to develop the kids to their maximum potential, not 90% or 95%, their absolute maximum, then you've got to find a way within 24 hours a day to find the time to really support those children to right. their maximum. So I've always held that belief before he even came up with this. You know, I've been coaching for nearly 30 years and I always found the time because I wanted to find the time because that was my consensus, mm. if that's the correct word. It was my consensus. It was my true belief that if I was going to, you know, develop a child who was putting in the effort, turning up rain and shine, you know, parents were really supportive, not, not pushy, and everything was right in that environment, then I thought it was my responsibility to find the time. Because you see so much on social media nowadays where people talk about time, I haven't got the time, and blah, blah, blah. And then you see these successful people going, there's 24 hours in the day, take out sleeping, you're awake for... 16 17 18 hours you're not working for 18 hours so therefore how do you use that time effectively and i think i think if a lot of coaches looked at themselves they could actually go yeah i could actually do this and actually make a real difference in these children's lives and actually feel better not just about coaching but feel better about myself as a human being to mm -hmm. another human being who's getting some real development as a person as well as an athlete out of this hundred percent, and I think the key thing that you, you, it really stands out for me there is is the is the underlying question: What's your why? Why are you doing it? Exactly. You know, why exactly. are you doing it? And I think um, you know it, it's all well and good saying, "Yeah, do you know what? I'm I'm doing it to help this player," but actually, no. To be the best, you have to invest in yourself. Whether that's 
um, you know, sometimes that could be paying for courses and up, you know, upskilling yourself through that. It could be spending more time reviewing. It could be spending more time having conversations like this, yeah. developing your understanding, your knowledge in that way. But actually, it's all part of an investment for you know whatever yeah. it is that you're looking to work towards. And I think that's probably the best way to kind of you know encapsulate it in that you're not doing it necessarily for the specific individual okay. that you're working with. Yes, they are going to benefit from it as well. But if they benefit, you benefit. Oh, of course, yeah. I've always seen coaching and development as a two-way street. Mm, mm. You know, I've got as much gratification as they have when they've gone and made the first team debut. Mm. You know, for me sitting there thinking I played some small part in that individual's journey, but I actually feel really great about being here today to see that child fulfil his or her dreams. And even within that, you know, no matter how small that part may be or how you perceive it to be, Actually, that probably could have been the biggest the biggest impact um, on the individual themselves. Exactly, it's a really really good point you make. I say this to when I'm training all my coaches. It's one thing that I'm very clear on that I say to them: you do not realize the influence and impact you have on every single one of those children's lives. For when they leave you and they're in the car on the way home, if you've done something really positive with that child they will be talking about you to their parent or adult or whoever's brought them. And you will never hear that conversation. You'll never be privy to that subject of conversation. But I guarantee your name will be in the centre of that conversation if you've done something really positive with that child during that session. No matter how little you've done, if it was positive and it showed you care about them, they will carry that with them not just in the car on the way home, but when they get up the next day and then they'll want to come back to you next time. Because I don't think coaches realise how important they are. No, 100%. You know what? I even had a bit of a... I don't want to call it an epiphany, but a a bit of a... What's the word? A bit of a check, a mind check, if you like, recently, um, just on the point that you're discussing. And I've been working with a player over the last couple of months. And... You know, he's he's currently at a Cat One club. He's on the you know they, they've kind of prior to Christmas they gave him um, his uh, feedback around where they see him at the end of the season, whether he's you know whether they, he's going towards a retain or going towards a release, if you like. Um, so you know, started working with him, and unfortunately got some news that wasn't obviously what he wanted to hear. So you know, he's, he's going to be on his way out of the club, unfortunately, but he didn't want me to know. Right. All right. And so then, you know, obviously <clears throat> I was speaking to the parents, but he, he, didn't want, he didn't want me to know. In fact, he actually wanted to um, see if he can avoid doing a couple of sessions, in fact, uh, with me because he didn't want me to know. It's like, okay, interesting. Why would that be? Because actually he says, he feels like he's let you down. I said, wow. you can't let me down. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm just here to help him. You know, there's no, I've got no expectation or judgment on what he can or can't achieve. My, my, my main thing is, right, since I've started working him, has he applied himself? Has he developed? Now, I'm not the club. I can't make a decision on whether he's going to stay or not. No. But their decision isn't going to have an impact on whether I think he's doing well or not. And it shouldn't certainly have an impact on, although I know it will, yeah, shouldn't have an impact on him in in the sense of right. Actually, you could be doing the right things sometimes, and you might have been doing the right things. You might actually be doing excellent things, but actually, the club that you're actually trying to impress, if you like, 
they just don't value that and that's fine yeah that's okay and i think that's one of the things i've definitely picked up over my time is actually sometimes you have a skill set or uh, or piece of knowledge that you've got that actually is just not valued in the environment you're currently operating in whether that be as a player whether that be as a coach whether that be as a coach developer and and I think that's really key, you know, you know, sometimes for play, players, athletes and coaches to just take a bit of stock sometimes saying, right, okay, what am I doing that's really good? And it might not be getting the recognition that you'd maybe want it to within the current environment, but then it comes back to that, that, the whole piece of, right, go where you're appreciated, go where you're valued. Um, and sometimes that might not be where you've ever even thought about. So just on that then, because... You know, again, if we're looking at the, what you're suggesting in terms of people development and actually getting to know the individual on a more personal level so that you can actually de de deliver a bes more bespoke program for them, if you like. And I think it's a great point that you made earlier that actually players do, they are individuals that make up the team and they do arrive at the training ground separately often. They do train differently. And if you, know, if you start looking at on an elite level, especially if you're looking at professional, in the professional game, pretty much everything they do, they do do for those that maybe aren't aware actually it's quite individualized yep you know their their their, their diets like you've talked about their training programs in terms of whether that be the physical training additional to the technical stuff that they're doing on the pitch with the coaches their recovery programs their you know every their warm-ups they might have specific warm-ups that actually they have to be you know there might be a generic warm-up the group does but actually this individual has to do things slightly differently or it might be for different rest periods and longer intensity you know longer longer time frames and higher intensity lower intensity all these different factors that then become individualized again so i guess what would your advice be and you know from the research that you've done and obviously the experiences that you've had around how coaches can start to bleed some of this stuff more into it. Obviously we talked about some of the constraints that the time might, might cause. Yeah. Um, but if, if time wasn't an issue and if the, if the coaches then or individuals listening to this understood that actually there is a way around it, if you like, um, it's not going to be perfect and it never will. No, it's no. important that we don't try and aspire to be perfect because we're never going to get there. But if we're telling ourselves and we're, we're honest with ourselves and say, actually, we're getting closer every single time we're getting closer, not to perfect, yeah. but to better. Yeah. I think, I think for me, if we, if we take away the pressure and the focus of winning games, I think that allows coaches then to step back and allows them the time to actually start to think about each individual player instead of talking about their team. I think that's a massive step forward. If they if they're if they're not they're not focused on that game on the weekend and what we've got to do during the week to win that game and you know and again we all know certain you know clubs they'll put the big kid at the back you know because he'll stop goals etc and he always stays there and he doesn't get any rotation of position. You know if we stop that and we don't focus on winning games and getting results. As I've said, it allows the players, the coach, the environment to take a big sort of sigh of relief from, we're not, we're not about winning games now. We're actually about what we should have always been about, the kids being engaged, having fun, learning, and not being afraid to actually try different things. I mean, how many times, 
you know, do we hear a kid will try something, whether it's a pass or dribble, whatever, and then they get rebuked by the coach for making that error. But the actual science is irrefutable. There's no learning taking place where there's no errors in place. You've got to be making errors in order to actually learn. You know, Dr. Andrew Huberman, which every coach should listen to, does a weekly podcast. He has a learning lab at Stanford University out on the West Coast of the US. He has a, you know, fantastic podcast. And he's one of the world's top neuroscientists. And he talks about errors in relationship to learning. And the science and the facts are, as I say, they're irrefutable. When you make an error, the brain secretes the two chemicals needed for learning. So when we see a block practice where it's let's play safe and we just mean you are learning how to say pass and receive and we're just passing and receiving in a straight line with no interruption and there's very little errors taking place. Well, we now know that there's very little, if any, learning taking place and it doesn't transfer into the game. So for me, it's about giving them the game in lots and lots and lots of different ways. Taking away a lot of, certainly up to the age of about 12 or 13. I'm not saying there isn't a place for some tick over work, you know, for some touches on the ball. But actually, there's nothing better than getting kids and playing them in lots and lots of different adaptive games. And within those games, the way that I've always done it, and they seem to really work successfully, is I start off with one little ad- ad- adaptation and then I'm done. I'm done as the, as the coach because once they start to pick that up, I'm like, right, guys, just hold it there. Doing fantastically well. You've got a quick 30 seconds and each little team come up with the next rule or adaptation. And then they start to scaffold their own learning by coming up with their own adaptations. And I suppose it's a little bit like me and you back in the day playing our own little made-up games. I've just always allowed them to actually start off with this one rule I was like, it's like whispering a thought in the mind. This is the first little thing we're going to do in this game. You know what the rule is, let's play. Then they start to get it. Then I'm just going, right, guys, it's over to you. And then they come up with something and I'm like, I think that'd be great. Everyone got that? Perfect, let's go. And I think if coaches start to use that system where it wasn't just focused on who's being a right-back, centre-back when these kids are eight, I mean, who knows where they're going to play? You know, what about... Like you said before, kids putting themselves in their own position, playing their own shape, playing, you know, different types of, you know, all these type of things will allow the coach time while these games are going on to go in and have a little word with Yas when he was 10 or Lee when he's 12. It gives you the time to do it when they're not being the dictator in the middle of a practice. 100%. I think one of the key things, you know, two things that really jump out at me there is, um, first of all, by allowing them to express themselves in that way, you actually discover what they're actually learned from the from the situation themselves. You can actually challenge them. In it. And it's interesting. People say, "Oh, you got a coach. What is the what, what's the future player going to look like?" Listen, I don't know what the future player is going to look like. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows what the future is. But what I can tell you, and that history has told us, is that the principles of the game never change. No, those are the principles. The players and the type of activities and the different sessions and all this it, that that might always change. We're never going to know what that's going to do. So I've, I've I've actually started challenging people when they say, "Oh, we've got we've got to think about what the future players are." Like, forget all that. 
you've got no idea what it's going to look like. Focus on the things that matter and the things that you can control. And that is the fact that actually the game is based on a set of principles. And if you coach to those principles, you can allow that to be the framework, you know, and excuse, excuse the pun, but that would be the framework to freedom in this context yep. and actually allowing the players to play in a way that suits them, in a way that they understand the game to make the game truly theirs, if, if you like. And I think the beauty within that, and this is, you know, a, what I consider a great way to kind of look at it is stop giving people a model. Because a model is only, it is what it is. It's the model. It's not meant to be anything different. It's like, you know, if I've got a McDonald's franchise, it's got to be, it's got to be like the one that they, they, they started, you know, whenever it started, the original yeah. McDonald's, you know what I mean? There's yeah. no, there's no deterring from that. But actually, if you say to me, right, yes, yes, this is a McDonald's, but you can add one or two different bits to the menu on it. And here's, here's the options. Go and do it. Then fine, you've given me the framework to work within. And I think that's the really key piece. Let's start moving away from providing direct guidance, direct instruction or models, if you like, and actually start yeah. applying more frameworks, which allows people to work within a structure, if you like. Yeah. It's loose or rather it's wider than something which maybe rather than rather than it be four meters where you can only do limited things in four meters actually no this is this is 50 meters of square 50 square meters and you can do much more in that exactly and i think i think within that is giving a space for the kids to go this is your time now there it is you can go yeah. and do what you want. Because yeah. how many, I mean, if we're both being honest, and you've seen a lot of sessions and really good ones, let, let's get it right. There's a lot of good stuff going out there. And this isn't me about bashing anybody at all in the book or now. But how many times have you seen, honestly, at any level, top to bottom, where the coach goes, right, this half an hour is yours. I'm just going to step back because I ain't ever seen that. Well, it, it doesn't happen. In, if, it, if it does happen, um, it doesn't happen enough. And I'll tell you what my, my thinking is that actually because we're in such an egotistical industry <laughs> yeah. that the coach often would believe that actually if I'm not seen to be what is perceived coaching, yep. then I'm not doing my job. Um. In actual fact, I actually look at it from a completely different perspective and I say, well, actually, if I am having to do that perceived coaching, I'm not doing my job. Yeah. Yeah, complete, yeah like completely. The way I look at it is I, I aspire, if, even if, I don't know if it's the best way to put it, but I aspire to make myself redundant um, to exactly. the point where players that I work with or if I'm working with coaches in a coach development perspective, the coaches that I work with are left in a position where they actually, they don't want me around or they don't need me around. But if they get asked the question as well, should we get rid of Yastin? No, 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 we, we still want him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still want him. And I think, I think when you're sort of comfortable in your own skin, mm. it allows you to do that with ease, really. But it goes back what, you know, what, what you just touched on with ego, you know, I just think there's a lot going on out there which is ego-driven where it's about my team, my players, yeah. my result, and I did this to win this trophy or championship or whatever it may be. If we think it's bad here, it is 10 times worse in the US for yeah. a winning culture 
is just, it's beyond ridiculous what you see out there. You see five-year-old kids, which I did see, playing on a full NBA basketball court with a full-size adult ball on a 10-foot hoop. And these kids were five, six years of age because there's an expectation that they want to see kids play the same game that everybody watches on the television. And it's ridiculous. I think, I think I totally agree with you. And I think that's why it's so good that we've got so many small-sided games, different formats of the game now to allow for these different, you know, these different challenges and constraints to be kind of looked at and dealt with appropriately. But the one thing I would say on that, and just a bit of a side note, is that I'm not so sure if I agree with this whole idea of art. Oh, it's their game. They're the players. It's their game. Actually, no, you're a coach. You're involved in it too. So I, I do believe that actually, um, not necessarily in a selfish way or not in a malicious way, at least, there has to be some selfishness to it. There has to be something that you're going to get out of it. And it's not just a completely selfless act or a selfless uh, role, if you like. So I think there has to be that kind of fine balance, you know, of... Yes, we are trying to develop an environment for the players. Yes, we are trying to get these things out for the players. But actually, what does the coach actually get from this too? And it's sometimes not as simple as just, oh, I'd just like to see them play. Actually, no, there is some other bits in there, but it's right. How are we bleeding those two things together? Where do they marry up? What do the players actually need? What am I trying to get out of it as a coach? And how can I bring those things together without an impact on either or? And it might be on some days, it might be more beneficial for the coach or towards the coach's outcomes. Yep. And it might be on other days that the coach kind of hands that over um, and uh, and allows it to be, you know, in the, in the favour of the, of the players a little bit more. But So I do think it's really important to kind of highlight that as well. Because often you do hear, right, well, you're the coach, you're there for the players. Yeah, you're there for the players, but the players are, you know, without you that game doesn't go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, you can't play without a coach. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is a human to human business, you know, right. and I, I, I can't sit here, you know, and say at the various clubs I've worked at when we took a team and they did really well that I didn't come home and I was really happy. Mm. But I think it's got to be balanced out with, well, actually, if the team, you know, as individuals, you know, really enjoyed it, they loved the experience and they lost, I don't come home and sulk all day because they actually lost. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think there's a balancing, you know, yeah. from it's great when we win, but equal measure, we are going to lose games. So we've got to be fine with losing as much as we are with winning games. Um, and I think you're absolutely spot on. You know, human beings are human beings. You know, do we take gratification ourselves when we see a team or a child really develop and, you know, say here in the UK, they're at a grassroots club and some work that a grassroots coach has done with them elevates that child and then they get signed by, you know, a Cat 1 club or, you know, Cat 2 club. Of course that coach is going to get gratification to think he's helped that child. So I think there are certain things that coaches should get from it. I think sometimes it's when we step over the line where it's the kids are a bit fearful to try things. They don't want to make an error because the coach shouts at them. You know, it's those, it's those type of things where we really need to refrain from that and actually help them embrace and celebrate making errors because it shows that they're trying things and they're learning. I always equate it to this, Yaz, and everyone always laughs at me, but if you've got a team or, you know, a group of players I just equate it to you've got a class of students and you're teaching them to speak, say, Chinese. Well, we're not going to expect them to speak Chinese at six weeks. But for some reason in football, 
in soccer. We expect immediate type results. And if they're not getting it, then something wrong. But yeah, we wouldn't expect them to be fluent in Chinese in six weeks. I just think we've got to relax a little bit, understand that errors are pivotal to learning anything, not just football, they're pivotal. And if they're not in place in your practice, then that should set alarm bells ringing to go, there's something not quite right here. It looks really great, but actually they can't transfer it into the game. So there must be a disconnect somewhere. And that is a disconnect. <laughs> 100%. I think part of that is, yeah, it looks very great. But at what level does it look great at? And what I mean by that is, yeah, they can pass and finish or they can pass and receive or whatever it is. Actually, how complex can it become before it becomes not so great? And not so great, like you said, is not necessarily always a bad thing because actually there's a lot of learning that can take place within that. Um, and I think that's a really key piece as well. So I guess, you know, look, you know, there's a, obviously covered a lot in, in this conversation, Lee, and I'm sure we could probably sit here for hours and hours, hours and just delve deeper. Definitely. Yeah, go off on so many different tangents off, off the back of it as well. I'm really, I'm really keen to kind of find out a little bit more about your book um, itself. Obviously, some of the stuff that we've talked about is obviously been mentioned and discussed in the book itself. Um, but just maybe tell us a little bit more about the book and how people can get access to it. Yeah, so I've set up a uh, series of links in the UK and the US uh, on Linktree. So if they go to linktree forward slash Lee, L-E-E dot Waddington, then all the links appear. So they can just do that. Alternatively, they can just put Lee Waddington into any sort of like Amazon in the US, Barnes and Noble, you know, any bookseller online anywhere in the world. If you put my sort of full name in there, which is Lee Waddington, the book actually just comes up. So Amazon being the simplest one. Just go straight to Amazon, put Lee Waddington in, it comes up. They can pre-order it now uh, for the UK and for the US. Comes out 1st of April in the US. We haven't got a set date yet for the UK, but I believe off what I've been told, it's going to be first week of May. So comes out this Friday in the US, first week of May out in the UK. Um, but very simple, either on Linktree or just put me into Amazon, which everybody uses nowadays. Awesome. And if, you know, if there was anyone that maybe wanted to get in touch with you and find a little bit more about your work and obviously potentially even follow up with you with a, with a review of the book even, is there somewhere they can do that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, anybody is free to contact me if it's about coaching, if it's about the book, if it's about anything we're doing in the US. Uh, it's lee at playsportsacademy.com. Awesome. So anybody... Feel free. Doesn't matter how little you know the thing is you want to discuss with me. You know, please feel free to you know just hit me up and I'll come back to you and try and help you in any way that I can. Awesome. Well, at least again, it's been another really interesting discussion for me to kind of have with you, and I'm sure that you know it will be, it'll be just another one of many to go um, along our lifetimes, hopefully. Um, but I just want to say thank you again for your time today. Obviously, sharing some of the insights of your book and obviously giving us a bit of insight on how we can get access to it. And I'm looking forward to reading it myself. That's great, Yels. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on again. Really appreciate it. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.